0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Analysis Episode 1. A little experiment we're trying, um, a new kind of episode, something in between the interview episodes and the chapter episodes. And today I'll be speaking with the blogger and uh, writer Chris Higgins. Again, this is something new we're trying out, so I'd encourage everybody to go to the website or email me comments on this new format. If y'all like it, then the plan is to sprinkle one of these in between the other episodes every couple months or so so anyway here's my conversation with chris higgins um i wanted to you know what here's here's my here's my intro for you are you watching the simpsons uh marathon on fx um not currently but i'm aware of it yeah so this has come at like an opportune time for me because i I had a cold all week and so as you know and the listeners some of the listeners know i have a a four-year-old uh baby daughter at home and so while i've been sick this week old four months yeah yeah um so all this week i've been trying to you know keep her occupied but not touch her as much obviously i've got to hold her to feed her and change (laughs) her and things like that um but so I don't know, it never occurred to me before to turn on the television. So this week I've been turning on the television <laughs> to try to to try to keep her occupied. And um you know, so I said to myself, "All right, I'm not no blues clues, none of this crappy til- children's stuff. It's going to be Sesame Street and Simpsons." And that's it. Because Sesame Street obviously educational, Simpsons, you know, hasn't steered me wrong in life. So this um the 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 marathon has been a godsend because i can just literally put the tv on all day right and right before uh we connected here the the mr plow episode was on (laughs) (laughs) right so it's been fantastic but so that made me think the way i want to intro you is almost to do like a troy mcclure like hey everybody (laughs) this is chris higgins (laughs) you might know him from such bylines as mental floss the atlantic this American Life or whatever. But Chris Higgins, um, maybe you should just um, introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, no, I'm a writer. I uh, I write for magazines primarily, and I've blogged for like eight years for mentalfloss.com and written for their magazine. My, my primary interest is um, people who do interesting things, which I guess encompasses like all of human endeavor, uh, but often it's technology, and that's because I've worked in technology for like, uh 15 years um so i was a before i was a full-time writer i was an ios developer before that i was a web developer and a web like project manager and i made software um and my my first like grown-up job uh my my job title was webmaster uh which was totally a thing in the 90s and i had several webmaster jobs and i was the master of my domain um yeah, now I'm a writer of magazine profiles about people who do stuff.
0: Actually, and I this is also on the baby tip, but I just discovered this. Like literally one of the f- one of the few baby apps I've downloaded is Peekaboo Barn. Yes. Apparently you had something to do with Peekaboo Barn.
1: Yeah, so uh rewind all the way back to like 2007. Um I quit my day job as a Uh, a maker of web software we were making web groupware for a a niche market and got a full-time job writing children's books uh, for a museum company they made the stuff that goes in a museum and then the recession hit and the museum contract completely dried up and the company said what can we do with a building full of creative people who have some technology skills that will make us money now and this happened in 2008 or 2009 somewhere in there And we looked around and said, okay, maybe we can make some apps for this new iPhone thing that seems so hot. And I was the only guy in the room who conceivably could program an iPhone. I didn't know how. I'd never done any Mac actual, like, you know, Cocoa stuff. And at the time, this is during, like, Fight Club, when you could not talk about iPhone programming. Like, there was an NDA that was so heinous. Uh, So I picked it up and figured it out. And I think it was, like, our first or second app was Boo Barn. And there were things in that app that I programmed because I had, I did not know what I was doing. Like everything happened in one view. Like it never switched to a, you know, a settings view or anything. Uh, Because I didn't know how to switch views because it was my like fifth week being a programmer uh, of that system. And that app has gone on to have a huge life on its own. And I left that company like, you know, in 2011 or something, Um, and the product, but still like, you know, peekaboo barn went on to become, there's also a -A peekaboo wild that I programmed. Right. Right. And there's
0: a, there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole series of them. It seems like, yeah,
1: there's like a -A peekaboo Sesame street now. So there's all kinds of peekaboos. Um, and yeah, I was the, initially I was the only coder uh, and there was a team of uh, content people who would feed me, you know, assets and we made these apps and put them out. And it was like on the original iPhone, like when it was iPhone OS 2.0, that was one of the earliest apps and probably one of the earliest apps, um, four toddlers and it, it survives today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Penny seems to like it, so. Well, and you and I know each other <clears throat> because we got friendly right around the time that I was going to start this project and um, you know, you had you had done a this American life segment and you knew sound and radio. <clears throat> and so I literally had you come into my into my office and and <laughs> listen to my settings yes. and tell me what I was doing wrong cuz I had you know, all this, all this audio stuff was new to me. Yeah,
1: um, I, that's another facet of my uh, employment history. I was an audio engineer in, in uh, well, I guess in high school and college, actually. And my interest in audio has <laughs> served me well, uh, working with, like, a This American Life and, um, you know, occasionally doing audio production for apps and stuff as well. Um, it's just something I got super into with bands and things and then realized, like, oh, this is still kind of like a specialized skill, and, yeah, I remember, like, like, seeing your your sort of home studio and being like, maybe we should turn the treble way down. <laughs> and, like, what's up with this, you know, cabling situation you've got here? And anyway, Yeah, well,
0: because yeah. I, I literally knew nothing about any of this stuff. but
1: Which is very daring of you to do, I should say, by the way. Because most people, I think, go into a thing because they've got some uh, – I mean, obviously, you, you care about the Internet and know about its history. But technologically speaking, just to say, like, well, I'm just going to go for it. I'm gonna make a podcast and we'll yeah, see what I don't, happens. I mean
0: I don't I don't I, I don't know if maybe that's just something that like I I have professionally done startups for the last fifteen years. Mm-hmm. And so like the whole process of startups, the whole mentality of it is you think of an idea, you, for me it's you think of an idea. Step two is has anyone else done this yet? Step three is well if if no one's done this, why don't I do it? And then step four is usually, well, if I don't do it, then somebody else will and I'll kick myself later. So I don't know, yeah, I don't I don't have that mentality where it's like, Well, I wanted to do this project and then well I'll figure out how to do the audio later. So Yeah. Thank thankfully you were there to, to help, you know, teach me to get me through the, the, the birthing pangs.
1: Well you seem to have yeah, you immediately uh you immediately got there, which is also very encouraging. So, um, ego stroking aside,
0: <laughs> I am me, you are you, and we yes. are here
1: to talk about uh internet history right i mean
0: yeah and and roughly roughly chapter 1 and 2ish the idea is you know i i i've you know been blown away by how successful the the podcast has been so far and and how much people are loving it and there's there's almost two camps there's people that love the the chapter episodes where i write them and read them and those tend to be younger listeners by younger i mean like 20s and early 30s and so for them it's like kind of catching up with stuff they didn't know and then the other half of the audience is people that love the interviews and those tend to be the older <laughs> by older we mean late 30s and 40s people that lived through this and are like oh yeah I remember that stuff and 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 you know <laughs> yeah so <clears throat> I kind of wanted to experiment with something in between and so the idea of this is is maybe is we're just going to you know talk through some of the some of the episodes and some of the issues and maybe do a little deeper analysis that I'm not able to do because I'm trying to serve a narrative in the chapter episodes and that obviously I can't do very much in the interviews because I don't want to impose my my viewpoints on the interviews. I just want people to talk. So
1: yeah, and I think it's also important to situate um how old we are. I think we're the same age, right? I'm 36.
0: I'm 36, yeah.
1: Okay, so I was born in 1978 and I think I would like to think this is special, but I think every generation probably for the past 100 years has experienced this. We lived through a specific shift. Like, mm-hmm. we were adults in a time uh, when cell phones, for instance, were not common. Um, and when, you know, the advent of the internet was, was a change in our professional careers. Well, early. I, would,
0: I would posit this. I, you know, I, when I left college in 1999... Mm-hmm. it was still uncommon in in a college lecture hall to see a laptop like maybe you 10 percent of the people would have a laptop and that's when i left in 1999 so you know obviously and i didn't get my first cell phone till i left college i didn't get my first cell phone till 2000 so yeah exactly what you're talking about did you have a laptop in college uh absolutely not no but I, I, I had obviously a desktop in 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 my dorm and later my apartment, and and I do remember this too. Um, we were the first when I went to freshman year of college it was nineteen ninety six. We were the first class that was able to sign up for classes online as opposed to going somewhere <laughs> and standing in a physical line.
1: Yeah, yeah. When it was, I was in a similar situation. I mean, you were in Gainesville, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I was in Tallahassee. So for the listeners, we were both in Florida, and I was at Florida State, and you were at the better one, University of Florida. We'll just. We'll just put that to bed right now.
0: Well, I know it was better, but obviously. Yeah. Um,
1: but yeah, no, I. So I had a big choice when I went away to college, which was did I want to have a car or a laptop? And because I grew up pretty broke, um, but I had a, a nice scholarship to go to school. And by going to a state school, it meant that I had a little leftover money. And I chose laptop. I had an IBM ThinkPad, a Lenovo. Well, I'm sorry. Now it's a Lenovo. Jeez. Right, right. Oh, my God. Right. Uh, anyway, it was the 701CS, which was the butterfly keyboard. It's a very oh, yeah. Yeah, a very specific, like, you know, this is like the sub-notebook that will change the world with this slide-out keyboard mm-hmm. that was physically wider than the laptop itself, the, the sub-notebook. And so I was the only guy uh, in any of my classes maybe maybe the last year like one other person would have a laptop that was possible but i recall people being completely
0: um i mean not offended but confused oh i do too yeah well put out would be a better word they weren't yeah. offended but it's like yeah it, it it would be like showing up it's like the equivalent would be showing up today with google glass on yeah people want to be offended but they're kind of too polite to be but they're like you know really what what are you doing <laughs> Yeah. And people would ask me, why, why
1: are you, what are you doing? Are you playing like solitaire on that? And I'm like, no, I am typing my notes. Like that is my thing that I do. And pretty quickly I found out that you could, um, sell your notes to people who were like note taking Mm -hmm, disabled mm -hmm. or whatever. So uh, that was like a revenue stream for me. was like, I would, I would sell these text files of my notes.
0: That's so funny that you say that I worked for a company all through college called A plus notes where they would hire kids in every all the major the huge lecture hall classes like the Econ 101 classes and things like mm-hmm. that where there would be 700 people in a class in a semester and like I literally that was what I did freshman through junior year and I got to be so good at it that not only did I do it for the classes I was in but I did it for other classes that I wasn't in so I actually sat through several <laughs> yeah. Econ classes even though I was a film major so there was no reason for me to take economics But in retrospect, I'm glad I did because everything I know about economics is because I took uh, micro and macro three times each. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Anyway, I mean, so this was like an interesting technological shift
1: because, I mean, even prior to this, like in high school, uh, actually going back to middle school, I was a BBS kid and then I was a CompuServe kid. Um, And so, like, I was very, very familiar with network technology and stuff like that. And so to show up... Um, at college, where I kind of assumed it would be full of people who were way more advanced than I, and have them all be like, "Oh my, what is this portable computer that you have?" Um,
0: what it was did really you get, what,
1: did, what did you get your degree in? Uh, library. Well, okay, it was called uh, Library Studies mm-hmm. uh, or Library and Information Studies. And I, I, right after I got the diploma in the mail, they changed it to Information Studies, sometimes called Information Science. So it's a it's a Bachelor of Science degree and. Mm-hmm. In my school, at the time I went there, um, you could, like, if you were a kid like me who basically wanted to get a job doing computers, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, You could get a CS degree, and you'd be a programmer, but I was never um, interested in math. I mean, I I wouldn't say I'm bad at math, but I didn't want to do it, and I didn't like it, and CS was very math heavy, so I took only a few, like, programming classes, sort of intro to CS stuff. And got scared away, and people said, oh, if you do library science, um, you can do the web, which is the sort of easier uh, internet-related job you could do, computer job you could do. And at that time, I mean, this is like, 90, again, I was the same thing, 96, 99, I did all the summers, so I got out of there kind of fast. Right,
0: I, I graduated early too, yeah.
1: Congratulations to us. Apparently, we're like yeah. the same guy. <laughs> like, apparently. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, I mean, it, this this literally was a time when people would say, just go to the West Coast anywhere and you can get a job as a web, like a webmaster or a web programmer or a web developer, designer, whatever these terms were. Um, and I, so when I graduated in 99 and took a little break and then showed up in 2000 in Portland, I was going to go to Seattle, but Seattle was too big and scary. I showed up in Seattle like in march of 2000 so basically the dot-com bubble is like exploding around me and i'm taking interviews uh so that was pretty tough and i lucked out really hard um and got a job at a at a startup dot-com um and had that job for seven years and then mm. that's that's what i then moved on to to become a you know to write mm-hmm. children's books and then Write iOS apps and then go back into consulting and then eventually quit all those jobs and be a writer. <laughs> you know, but like. You know
0: what? Yeah. We really are kind of the same guy because a lot of my friends were a year older. And so they all graduated in 98, 99 ish. Mm-hmm. And because we were on the East Coast instead of moving out west, most of them moved here to New York City, um, but they all got jobs in dot com companies, every single one of them to a person that I knew. So when I would come up here in 99, um, I had actually started my first company at this point and I remember being at a bar and, and at, a, at a urinal and, and one of my the, the company that ended up being my main competitor my original main competitor was advertising on the urinal cake. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but but so I vicariously because I didn't run up here and get a dot-com job but all my friends did so yeah I sort of lived through that dot-com stuff too because I can remember clearly uh, talking to one of my friends on the phone when he's like oh man because I I was thinking of moving up here, and he's like, well, you've already missed the boat. They, they We had a meeting this week where they're like, uh, the party's over. We we have to show a profit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I think that that was actually... The, the, the coastal decision is one thing, but also, yeah, are you going to get a dot-com job? That was really inspired, frankly, for me just by growing up with parents who were, you know, uh, not rich and, like, wanting to have something to kind of fall back on. Um, and it took me whatever it was it took me like 13 years or something to kind of stop falling back on something to Mm -hmm. stop saying oh right that job that i decided i had to have just for security's sake i'm gonna um, let's chuck that into the thing that i I really love love um which is not to say i don't love technology i've always been really obsessed with it and really into it but it's at this stage technology is more of a a way that i do my job than a thing that is my job but yeah i mean those experiences of like it really was. It was It was. go to New York, uh, go to L.A., or go to Seattle or something. And in my mm-hmm. case, like, I had a lot of friends in Seattle and people working at Microsoft. And when I showed up and looked at that, I was just terrified. I was like, oh, my vision of this as sort of this, like, you know, small-town Florida kid was that there would be uh, smart people in a small room, a limited number of them, and that we would all work on the same thing and then go out for drinks later or something. Mm-hmm. And in Seattle, I was not in the right uh, neighborhood to see that happening. All I saw was gigantic buildings and freaky stuff. But in Portland, it was that. I mean, it was quite literally like, okay, we bought a house, and we're all going to live in the house and, like, make some software and see what happens, man. And, like, that was super groovy to me. So I just was like, all right, let's do this. And it turned out great. Um, You know, like, and the thing is, like, today, people are like, oh, should I move to Portland now? And I'm like... I, I and there, you've never I think it's also a truism that no one has ever missed any boat like there mm-hmm. is no boat to miss because you know we keep having these cycles, right? But things are so different today for someone who moves to Portland now uh, than you know fifteen years ago. Uh, it, it just is a fundamentally different decision to make. Um, but yeah, I mean, like our tech industry now is is substantial, and you know there's no reason not to do it. Um, unless you want to get super, super rich, or you want to work at, like, one of the big, big companies.
0: Um, right, right.
1: And by the way, San Francisco was not even on my list, like, when I was in college. I didn't realize that it was an important thing. I didn't think of the Bay Area as, like, a, a realistic web prospect.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I was aware of it, definitely, at the time, yeah. um, mainly from, from people that ha- that have subsequently, or at the time, gone out there and, you know, had their successes and stuff. But, yeah, that's a good point, like there there was a, a piece on this I can't remember where recently maybe it was medium actually <clears throat> about you know um, don't worry about m- missing the wave or whatever and that's the other thing about this is you know I've been in this industry for 15 years and I've seen multiple waves you know what I mean so like even the people that I know that went out to San Francisco in 2004 2005 2006 it's entirely different now in an entirely different way. Like it it doesn't matter. There's a new wave that's going to come. It's, it's just one of those things. Like if you're, if you're chasing what the old wave was, you're always going to be disappointed. If you're going to, if the thing to do is to instead just plant yourself somewhere and wait for the wave to wash over you, whatever the next wave is, you know? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that was Kevin Kelly writing on medium. The piece was called you are not late. Yes. Exactly. Like, I interviewed Kevin Kelly, I think last month, maybe it was two mm. months ago. And like, you know, if you think about Kevin Kelly real briefly, like, here is a guy who has um, who has had multiple careers. Like, he's had all these different kinds of things, like the Whole Earth Catalog and, you know, editor of Wired and now with Cool Tools and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, he has done these these dramatically different technological things. You know, making a catalog seems so different in some ways uh, to making a blog. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, I mean, he's just a guy who's like, "Hey, I, I'm a smart person and I'm organized. and I'm going to find good things and bring them to light, and that will I will make a job of that. And boy, has he succeeded in doing that, you know? Right, right. So, you know, talking to him, I, I just felt like, wow, this guy is like a like a wizard. Um, and then having him write that piece, I'm like, yeah, exactly. Like I have that. Occasionally, I will get people who say, you know, well, give me give me some job advice or whatever, and I'm like, oh god, because what are you going to do? Um, but that, that kind of thing, I want to say, this is the hopeful view of what someone would do today. Um, and, and granted, I also want to preface all this by saying like most of my choices when I was in like high school and college were were primarily motivated by fear and hunger. So, uh, it really worked out beautifully. And like, what doesn't look like that in, in retrospect, like you look back and you're like, oh man, you really Boy, you showed up in Portland in 2000 and, like, oh, you were doing web software? That's how prescient of you, you know? And I was right, like, right. What? I wanted, like, a job, like, a jobby job. Um, anyway, so I wanted to ask you about the podcast um, and about the project as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I've listened to uh, big chunks of it. Uh, incidentally, I'm, I'm listening mostly on Overcast, um, where I find that fiddling with like the playback speed and uh eq and stuff is really fun and kind of helpful but also yeah, mostly just just yeah. fun and fiddly yeah um but especially if it's like you know you have a couple of hours of content to get through and you can just sort of bump speed it, it, up. it up yeah i mean i got through it really rapidly
0: yeah actually i i downloaded it because i'm a fan of marco's but i i i've been using downcast for so many years that it's i don't know i can't break the habit but yeah anyway go on
1: well, and so I think that one of the the main metaphors that I want to ask about is chapters. So yeah. I understand the metaphor of a chapter as a book topic, right? So it's like you know, chapter one is Netscape, right? Mm-hmm. And chapter two is what Microsoft and Microsoft versus the Internet, kind of.
0: Yeah, kind of, kind of realizing the. It's sort of like the, it's one of those origin stories that I got into the industry with that you know Microsoft had to had to. Hustle and like, oh, Gates write, writes that famous uh, Tidal Wave memo, and and um, you know, all of a sudden, everything in Microsoft is now web focused, and they get Internet Explorer out there, and they eventually, you know, defeat uh, Netscape.
1: Yeah, well, and so chapters aside for now, I'm wondering, like, you start at chapter one, and you started at Netscape, and it seems like the natural question to pose to you is like, well, there was a lot of internet before Netscape, obviously, mm. and, and you mm-hmm. know this. And even, yeah, yeah. even really before Mosaic, there was plenty of stuff you could start with. Why pick that moment?
0: Yeah, um, I've said this on the site in places, and I've said this to other people, but yeah, that's I'm glad you asked that. That's worth saying, because <laughs> that's totally obvious, and other people have asked it too. Uh, number one, yes, uh, you know, DARPA, ARPANET, um, all that stuff going back to the 60s and 70s, um, other people have written about it. Um, and it's kind of a common, it's not that I'm not interested in it, but my main interest is people have even, there's been books about Berners-Lee and, and mm-hmm. the birth of the web and everything. So that like, that's obviously another obvious place that I could have started. Uh, and I might go back and at least do Berners-Lee as well. I'm not sure, but to me, the story, the, the, the whole impetus for this was the story to me is what we're talking about, like this era when technology went from being a tertiary thing to it's touched every crevice of our lives at this point you know what i mean Yeah. and like it, it is this era that we've lived through and so i that's why like if i ever put it out as a book i'll you know subtitle it the history of the internet era because it's not the history of the internet it's the history of the internet era that i want to tell and to me netscape for so many reasons was absolutely the big bang that made it happen. Not only was it serendipitously the browser that, you know, basically everybody that got on the web for the first time got on with. um, But it was the, it was the big bang IPO. Mm -hmm. You know, there were other, there were other internet related companies that IPO'd before Netscape even, but you know, that was the one. So that was the first stock that you know, people were like, on its first day, it what? It doubled, it tripled, you know. And so, it, it, we saw <laughs> we would see tons of stuff like that, you know, going on in the '90s and and things like that. But that was the first one of that. That was the first one that, you know, they reported on an IPO on the nightly news. Yeah. And then that was the first one where all of a sudden the cover of Time magazine is these these young mid twenties geeks, you know, from 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 Illinois that, um. You know, are suddenly multimillionaires and stuff. So yeah, if if my premise is that I want to tell the story of the internet era when it when it got into our mainstream lives, um, then Netscape is the perfect sort of big bang, um, you know, uh, origin moment I think to start with. And also, it, it ends up being really it sets the template for this whole startup culture that that has become cliche now, but, you know, all these kids, you know, working hard, uh, late at night, you know, pulling all nighters playing Nerf football and stuff in in between. And, um, yeah, that, that, those, those were the guys that everybody has basically copied for the last 20 years.
1: Yeah. I think there's a bunch of things in that I want to get into, but I think one of them that I'm like, I remember, you know, like I remember when Mosaic came out, Mm -hmm. um, well, I don't remember when Mosaic came out. That's wrong. But when Mosaic right. became became known and noticed... Um...
0: Yeah, let's put it this way. I don't remember when Mosaic came out either. I remember using Mosaic. Yeah. I remember seeing Mosaic. But I definitely remember when Netscape came out. I remember downloading it and, and using it for the first time. So, yeah, I, I was a little too young to actually know Mosaic, you know, natively, yeah. I
1: guess. When I had an older brother who's three years older who was off at Carnegie Mellon uh, doing CS, and so... When I'd go and visit him, he would be, you know, running Mosaic on his Linux box in his dorm room. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. Like, those, there's three things here I don't understand, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. um, But, you know, like, I recall seeing early browsers. And also, I, you know, would go home and download a browser for my, like, you know, my Windows, I guess, Windows 3.1 machine, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, I I remember trying out Netscape and stuff. And as a a very heavy user of things like CompuServe and BBSs, I was, like, astounded at how slow and horrible it was. So my initial reaction, I... I, And this is an example of why I should never, like, pick stocks or, you know, companies. But I remember firing up this thing, this Netscape 1.0 thing, um, Mm -hmm. and thinking, this really sucks. Like, this is slow. Mm -hmm. And... I, you know, like it's clunky uh, for multiple reasons. It was probably the network speed and probably my machine. And I can just get so much more done because I'm this like skilled user of this text-based interface. And so I just kind of ignored it. And I kind of wrote it off and deleted it and moved on. And then a year or two later, like whenever I was, uh, you know, actually off at college, I could no longer ignore it. Like it it became, uh, it both got better uh, very rapidly and my hardware got better uh, pretty rapidly. And I suddenly was like, oh, right. Like this, oh, this is totally a thing. And, you know, and so hanging around like in library science school in the 90s, like the late 90s, there were these moments that would happen. Uh, One of them seems very distinct to me. And I I don't remember what year this was, but I'm going to guess it was 98. There was a year, there was a day when one of our professors had been tracking um, some dictionary, like, you know, the Webster's Dictionary or whatever. He he said, there will come a day when every dictionary.com name will be registered. And that's, like, a big day. And we're pretty mm-hmm. close to it. And he, he had, like, a little countdown thing. Mm-hmm. And he ran, like, a Python script or something, or sorry, well, actually probably a Perl script, um, <laughs> to see whether, uh, you know, all the, the dictionary words were registered. And then one day, mm-hmm. he, like, walks into the lab and says yep, it was today. Last one (laughs) went. And it was, you know, like whatever it was, like arthropod.com or something, you know, and you're like, oh, geez. Um, But I remember thinking that that we had crossed uh, this odd threshold. Um, and, And also that, you know, I would do a thing where at school, I would be using a browser and an email client, usually in like a telnet window, um, and then I would go home and I would use the same thing. And that was a really, uh, it felt really good, but it also like in retrospect, I think that there was no division between kind of my school life and my home social life. Um, cause they were both heavily technologized and it was the same exact technology, you know, cause whereas in high school I might go home and, play in a band with a guitar or something that I would go to school and there would not be computers per se. Um, suddenly it all kind of mixed together. And so um, like, yeah, yeah,
0: there's this firm delineation for you where, where uh, high school is still analog and then all of a sudden college is definitely all digital.
1: Yeah, because I graduated in 96 and so you know that was a pretty good year to suddenly go and, and be kind of digital. Um, and so for me, like, I totally get this idea of the internet era as a cultural and, and and technical thing, technological thing. And I like for instance I remember being uh 98 99 walking past a headline, like a newspaper headline. It was pasted in somebody's window in their apartment and it said Dow 10,000. The like, Dow reaches milestone. Will it will it get any higher? Can it get any higher? Like the internet's driving the economy, man. And I just had this feeling of like, I don't know, what to feel, like am I should be, like, be excited or worried or whatever. And I recall like recently we saw Dow 15,000 and I'm like, well,
0: <laughs> you know. Right. right. It took a while, but this is
1: this is happening. Well, you know. Happening.
0: That that I think maybe that is another answer to your question because um, even though I am interested in the technology, this is fundamentally a technology story. For me, a huge interest personally is the business story um you know as someone that runs businesses and stuff like that for whatever reason the reason that like this has always been in my head is uh yeah i was a day trader in like 98 and 99 (laughs) Uh that's what i was doing running in between classes in college and so yeah this has always been at the forefront of my mind sort of as like this business you know i've had uh, Fortune magazine and Business Week magazine subscriptions for 15 years. And so to me, the interesting part is the narrative of the companies ebbing and flowing. And now Microsoft's up. Now Google's up and Microsoft is down. And now it's Google versus Apple. And, and the whole story of the, the dot-com bust is to me such a fascinating business story. I I can't wait. To get to those chapters, so that I can interview some of the people that were involved, in even some of the unsuccessful dot com companies, not to <laughs> humiliate them, or 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 you know Nelson style, ha ha, at them, but because what a fascinating story to in in a in a such a compressed time period to be involved in an enterprise that is nothing, that is billions and billions of dollars, and then is nothing again, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I think that's another answer to your question. Is I'm fascinated with with the business stories, the entrepreneurial stories, as well as the technology. I guess.
1: So um, this may lead into a further like a further episode. But have you seen a documentary called Code Rush?
0: I have, and I don't know that I watched all of it. That's mm-hmm. the one. That's the documentary. That's a, that uh, I believe it follows. Um, the the Netscape engineering team it's maybe 90 98 right because it's around the time that uh, AOL buys Netscape right right I believe that the reason I have not watched all of it yet is because it I, I watched it to see if there were any quotes that I could use for chapter one and since the the, the years don't match up I think I, I put that in my back burner to go back and watch again later cool okay
1: um yeah I mean I think we should talk a little bit about Netscape um I guess as a company and there's a, there's like a nagging question that I have throughout and this comes up in both chapters, but there's like a tendency on your part as a journalist, I think to, to, to mistrust the official version of events.
0: Yes. You actually
1: say it as such. You're saying like the official story is yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And then, but I think like, let's, you know, assemble the rational pieces that we know and then we'll, we'll kind of investigate and attempt to see if there was a different story. I mean, as a reporter I would want to ask you like why do you distrust official stories, but that's not as relevant as saying so let's tackle the Netflix the Netscape official story. Yeah. and why you didn't trust it. And I'll I, do, you want, do you want to summarize it or shall I? Uh you go ahead. All right. So I mean, when I listen to this uh first chapter thing, you talk about um the Mosaic team, you know, leaving um and then the formation of Netscape and this notion that Netscape didn't immediately say, gee, guys, let's make a browser, um, but is hiring, you know, like the Mosaic team and like, you know, is called the Mosaic company and stuff like this. So there's this like business narrative that they were like, well, let's just figure out what's us mm-hmm. get this great talent and we'll figure out what we're going to make. And I agree with you. It makes zero sense to me in retrospect that they would not have their eyes completely on a browser because they had, the browser engineer and they had the browser name and they had all the browser. like that was really 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 obvious yeah but yeah what well, when i guess when did you first question that like well, what piece of evidence caused you to say oh that's not that doesn't make sense
0: i'll tell you why i questioned it initially is because the sources when i wrote chapter one before i did any of the interviews with the mosaic and netscape team were all the the sources from the time like mm-hmm. let's say 95 96 and so it was exactly what we're talking about. It was all, hey, look at all these kids becoming millionaires out in Silicon Valley. And so it was all of the hype about how, man, these young kids were are geniuses, and and their their genius is paying off, and they're becoming millionaires. And so that felt very trumped up to me. And then also it it it, it felt like you know, sort of going back later in history and and justifying all the all the things that were happening. So those stories aren't messy anymore now. Suddenly, they're triumphant, and so I'm skeptical <laughs> yeah. of that. But also, remember, at the time, so much, so much of the media was explaining what this internet thing was. So there was a lot of, like, these guys are geniuses and things like that. Whereas to me, you know, having done things like startups, you know what it really is, is that no one really knows what they're doing. They, you know, you, you, you think you have a good idea, you throw it against the wall, and it doesn't stick, you know? So I, the, the, I, I'm i just skeptical of it from experience. I kind of, in in retrospect, just as an aside, I, I feel like maybe I was a little harsh on Mark Andreessen, especially. And actually, some people have commented and sent me tweets about that and commented on the website. And I was skeptical of Mark Andreessen because, again, the details are, you know... He didn't really actually code that much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly Eric Bina that does the work that they did on the the X-Windows version of, of Mosaic. And he's not really around for any of the coding of Netscape at all. He's immediately sucked up to do all the interviews and 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 do the the big strategic thinking. So, <clears throat> you know, again, these chapters are, are my first draft chapters, and th- I put them up as first drafts. And if I ever do publish a book, they will be definitely different chapters, especially after all the interviews. But the way... Uh, uh, actually, just to to, to finish that Mark Andreessen thought, mm-hmm. especially after I, I spoke to all the Netscape people, I have a vastly different appreciation for what Mark Andreessen's role really was, and that was definitely visionary. Um, and it starts at Mosaic because... It's it's essentially Mark and every single one of the mosaic guys said this. Mark was the guy that basically said, and his main idea was the web browser can can bring the internet to everybody, can democratize it. Eventually my mom and grandma will be on this web using this browser. If we do it the right way. If we add the images, if we you know make it uh user-friendly and 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 you know, hopefully speedy and things like that. Now the The problem is is that the timeline is sort of funky, so
1: <laughs> it's always inconvenient, isn't it?
0: yeah, and you know i I got close to interviewing um um uh, Jim Clark and you know Mark Andreessen follows me on Twitter, but every time I've asked him to do an interview, I get silence so, sure i i I would love to ask them for these details, but again, you never know what what, what you know what's their motivation for uh you know it's, it's 20 years on, it's easier to, to go with the glory days, but here's, here's the best I can I can piece together. Mark Andreessen um, either leaves in a huff from the NCSA because they won't allow him to do to take over the project at the NCSA. So is the, and he goes off to Silicon Valley. Now does he immediately go off to do another browser? There's conflicting stories from Jim Clark, from him, from other people. The the Netscape people that I spoke to, the the Mosaic people that went on to do Netscape, from their point of view, Mark went off just to find a job. There was no sort of grandmaster plan. But then also it's convenient that somehow Jim Clark finds him. Now, granted, Mark Andreessen is famous at this point for having done Mosaic, so it's not really... It's not insane that a Jim Clark would just reach out over email and be like, "Hey, you know, I I've left Silicon Graphics and I want to do something new, and you seem to be a guy that knows what's the new thing." So that's not insane, but then it is still kind of like, you know, and then and then Steven Spielberg saw her in a in a cafe and plucked <laughs> her out of obscurity, <laughs> right? So that's what's sort of weirdly convenient that I'm I'm skeptical of. I'm not saying that you know these stories are made up or whatever the best i can piece together is that one way or another jim clark does reach out to him and there's a period of four or five months where and this would be the beginning of 94 where jim clark has a brain trust and he's he's casting around ideas for a new company and what i can't figure is he there's there's discussions that they're going to do something with Nintendo and maybe television, you know, on demand and things like this. So is it Mark all the while, you know, Mark's just this kid from Illinois. Um, He's he's had this great success, but it's not it's not a company. He's he's, he's kind of still a nobody. Is he just biding his time waiting to convince Clark? No, listen, here's here's the really good idea is mm-hmm. let's just do this browser. Right. Right. Because Jim Clark and others have said, "Oh no, 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 Mark was Mark was so pissed off at the NCSA how it had treated him that he he didn't want to do browsers at all. But again, that's the obvious thing for them to do. you know, because the 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 uh, mosaic browser, which was owned by the NCSA, is still kind of stuck in academia, and clearly there's this great product that can be commercialized, which you know contemporaneously the uh, NCSA tried to commercialize with, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I can't remember the company off the Uh, top of my Spyglass? Spyglass, right. Yeah. So, right. I don't know that anyone, hopefully someday I'll be able to ask somebody this question, but why did they not just make the browser right away? Because, again, if they call the browser originally uh, Mosaic, then isn't that sort of just... We're just doing we're just doing what we did before. So are, are they fudging the details because even at the time that would have been, you know, asking for a lawsuit? I don't know the answer to that question. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at home impression kit today for only fourteen ninety-five at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind with sleeping dogs, a gripping murder mystery. Yeah, and I mean, one thing I wanted to mention about Mosaic, that, and the reason it's interesting to me is partly because I didn't know this until, like, uh, I don't know, last year. Um, I was doing a piece on the Internet Archive, which was founded by Brewster Kale, who has done a bunch of stuff. He was at Thinking Machines, you know, in the 80s. Um, he founded Alexa Internet. He founded the Internet Archive, obviously. But, like, he mentioned at one point... Um, and it, when, you, when you prep for these kinds of interviews, it's like, I basically have an hour with this guy, so I want to watch every, you know, especially every videotaped interview, but try to get as much of what his stock story is, right. so I don't ask him that stuff. Right, right, yep. But one thing he kept bringing up was he was like, look, so um, I think he was at Thinking Machines uh, when he made, or Connection Machines, whatever they call the actual company, when he and a, and a couple other people made this thing called Waze. Uh, I think it was Wide Area Information Server. Yep, yep. Um, and he said, look, uh, look, kid, basically like sort of in some other interview he's talking about. He said, you know, remember Mosaic? We called it Mosaic, or they called it Mosaic because it spoke a mosaic of protocols. It spoke HTTP and FTP and like Gopher and Waze was one of them. And we didn't necessarily know like, which one of these... We didn't really think one of these was going to dominate all the other ones. We all kind right. of thought, okay, well, you'll use Waves for your, like, searching and querying of large databases, and you'll use, like, Gopher, Gopher for... Right. I don't... I mean, I was actually never a Gopher user, but I think that's what they kind of assumed would be the web-like kind of thing. And then, surprise, surprise, the web turns into this uh, kind of general-purpose useful thing. So, I mean, part of me thinks that if the term mosaic was a genericized term, which you do, you talk about? um, Yeah.
0: Right. In the same way that an FTP client is an FTP client. So maybe at the time people were thinking that we wouldn't call them browsers. We'd call them mosaics or something, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems, it seems somewhat plausible to me that, that in that context, or I mean this, I guess I said this to you, when you ask these guys, perhaps that's part of the question is like, can you try to try to think back linguistically to, you know, what you thought of Mosaic when you released it. In the same way that, like, somebody who writes, you know, FTPD for Linux or whatever and, like, releases the FTP program and it's called FTP, you know, like, they just make a thing called the thing um, or text edit, right? You know, like, oh, we're going to make a right. company right. called text edit. And right, text right, editors, right, right. Anyway, so I think there's a possibility that that was. I, I do agree with you. It does seem awfully. Um, there, are, there are gaps here. Um, but I also do think it's interesting to think about. The things that didn't didn't catch on, you know, the waze's and the gophers and the whatever of the world, that just kind of like, well, they were, you know, extremely useful in Ross Perot's campaign or whatever, and then kind of just right. melt, melted and didn't didn't matter.
0: Well, or are still there in the background, like you know, news groups still exist and thrive. I yeah. mean, most people don't use them, but there are a ton of people that do and t- use them a ton. So,
1: yeah, I have a whole side tangent about that, but <laughs> for another time, perhaps. Um, do you want to get into the whole set top boxes, TVs, thin clients, that whole thing?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, in a way in a way that one was also more fun because that that's that's um again, I was able to to put my pet theory in there that um, you know, the whole the whole reason that the internet took everybody by surprise was what you were saying before with your first experience with the web browser was that, you know, boy this is slow. I can do so much more with other things. Um yeah, they really the, the the fact that the internet succeeded and the web specifically. Let's 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 be clear with our terms here. The web specifically succeeded sort of even blows my mind now because yeah, it 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 was just good enough and barely good enough, you know. Right. Um there there the fact that you had to wait minutes for an image to load much less eventually you know streaming audio video things like that so yeah it seems impossible but that was all because everyone thought that they would have to wait for the fatter pipes to come along um before truly networked interactive computing would 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 be at all mainstream
1: yeah and i mean well here's an anecdote um like it, the year was maybe 97, I think. Um, and I got this job as a webmaster at a company that was a, uh, an Apple value-added reseller, which was a thing that really existed until Apple began to make retail stores and just kind of shoved this out of existence. So what this was was a place where you would go to buy a Mac or have your Mac fixed. Um, they also happened to basically be an ISP. So a little company in Tallahassee, and they had a 64k symmetrical and i say k you know like right yeah it was like just barely better than a 56k modem it was a 64k but it was symmetrical it was this least line situation and they were running a couple of websites on it and they had like a few dial-up clients who i think were very quickly um, removed because there were only a few phone lines that came in but anyway i was running large websites i mean i guess large is the wrong word but like kind of substantial websites on a 64k line and that was not a problem um and like at the time i didn't think that that was that unusual and in retrospect i'm like you know like i do recall doing a lot of uh image smushing and all sorts of stuff to try to make my websites uh efficient but like well i'll give you an example so i i received to my knowledge the first imac that anyone in Florida had. That happened in, I think, 98. So the iMac was known to be a thing that was going to happen, and because we were in Tallahassee, like the farthest, the northernmost place in Florida, um, there was the situation where each of the resellers was going to get one iMac FedEx to them like a couple of days before uh, it was for sale. So it was like Saturday, and it was going to be for sale on Sunday or Monday or something like that. It It was even Friday night. So my friend who had got me this gig, who was he was in, like, the repair department, um, he and I got this iMac, and we kind of looked at each other, and we were like, so what do we do with this? Because it was fundamentally just a, you know, it was like a G3 Mac in a nice case. So, of course, we took it apart and found all kinds of weird stuff in there, like a VGA. Like there's a port labeled VGA inside it,
0: <laughs> and we were like,
1: ooh, you know? Um but at the time i was running uh an apple like a like an imac specific rumors and information website called imac info and somebody out there could probably find this it was um i think the url was imac.macguys.com and it's probably on um archive.org but this was like you know this was a college kid who saw an opportunity and said hey i'm going to like collect all the all the imac related news And we got pretty big. I mean, we had people, like, sending us review units of USB peripherals and stuff. And, like, um, that whole business was run off of this incredibly wimpy setup. And it was hosted on a Mac, an old Mac, running, like, I think, macOS 7 point something. Right.
0: Not even a dedicated server or anything like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And we had this – the thing was also, like, I think we take for granted – and we have taken for granted for so long now that serving websites was like, uh, is a commodity thing. Um, we had an odd diversity of ways to serve a website. (laughs) Like, you know, we had this commercial product that we'd bought for the Mac that served websites. I forget what it's called, frankly. Um, but you, you know, put stuff in there and it served it. And like, you know, when I later became, uh, a West coast, you know, Uh, developer and was using like actual unix and stuff i would scoff at my my weird mac setup but i think the thing was looking back at it it's easy to ignore um the fact that there were real businesses you know like this was a company that hired a whole guy me to run this business and all the bandwidth i had in the entire world was 64 kilobits and like and it worked um you know
0: well you know when when you you haven't listened to these chapters yet but when i took i spoke to tim tim brady of yahoo there there's a point when you know famously yahoo is running all of yahoo out of stanford servers mm-hmm. and stanford eventually says hey guys listen <laughs> this is too much you got to go somewhere else so this is yahoo so this is serving millions and millions of people a day even at this point and before they can go actually get a setup with an office and, and their own servers, they live for apparently a month or two inside Netscape's offices because Netscape's trying to, you know, buddy-buddy up with them at the time, you know, possibly eyeing a buyout or something like that. And so essentially they say to Jerry Yang and David Philo, sure, um, we've got a spare uh, Silicon graphics thing over here. Um, just just bring your stuff and, and put it in that corner. <laughs> So yeah yeah so again what you're talking about at the time you could do so much with seemingly so little but you know what what you made me think of by, by saying that, that here's the key is again the the, the big smart powerful people the the, the time Warners the the um, Bill Gates is the people people like that were were, were convinced that, We have to wait for video and great pictures and great sound because people are not, there's no mainstream medium that's going to exist with just this rinky dink, whatever. But the key to everything that the internet has always been, sure, video's nice, pictures are nice, all that stuff. It's just interactive. It's just people talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't need anything very complicated. You basically just needed to put people in touch with each other. And that was it. Like, you know, I, I talk about that in, in the AOL thing. AOL made its fortune off of chat and specifically sexy chat. It's just putting, <laughs> yes. putting people in a room and talking dirty to each other. Yeah. So that's not incredibly bandwidth intensive. Now, if you want to trade pictures, then that's another story. But, yeah, l- listen, all that you needed to do is just put people in touch with each other. That is the key to what the entire internet has always been from day one. And to this day, What do you, of all the things that you do on the internet all day long, you know, looking at, at pictures, reading articles, whatever, you, you're mostly kind of texting back and forth to people, tweeting back and forth to people. You're reading your Facebook page. It's essentially someone's communicating to you. So that's all it is. You, you didn't need big bandwidth to just have people talk to each other, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, I mean, I, I you may have had this experience as well, but like I growing up as kind of a BBS kid, um, mm-hmm. yeah, to at I one was point, too. well, my, my one luxury in life was that my parents eventually bought me a phone line and that was my phone line for my modem to plug into. And, you know, that saved my life. Like, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have that because like, but I mean, the, my point is I started out with um, a 300 baud modem. Like that's what I had attached to my ex- piece of crap xt clone
0: i remember having a 1200 i remember having a 14.4 yep. or 56 was such a big oh my
1: god we're getting, getting a 56 finally we got a 1200 baud modem at one point and i recall that the problem i had was when i would try to dial into CompuServe, there were different rates for different speeds so if and like 1200 and 2400 were priced the same if i recall and we didn't have a 2400 because i mean oh man oh my like that was for the real serious nerds but so I would dial in at 300 because it was basically kind of like teletype-like speed. It was like, you know, words are moving across the screen a little faster than you can read and well, definitely faster than you can type. Well, sort of
0: Matrix style, but slower. <laughs>
1: yeah. Right, right. And so, like, if the goal was to, like, get onto a thing and read some stuff, which you, that was all the goal was. You could also, like, play games. You could play text adventures and stuff. But that that was the the communication goal. Even in things like chat rooms, which I I early on got a job on CompuServe um, moderating chat rooms and moderating uh, text forums as an 11-year-old, which is a yeah, other. Yeah, by the way,
0: definitely when, if we, yes. when we talk about that chapter, I want to hear that story in greater detail. But yeah, the,
1: the day I got the Wizop op flag was like, you know, ooh, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm going places, man. So... But like you know, I, I lived through these these moments of even just modem technology, right? So I had seen the jump from three hundred to twelve hundred. Then I saw the jump to twenty four hundred, which was dramatic. I mean, you could do so much more. You could really transfer files at twenty four hundred, and you could at three hundred, it just sucked, you know. And I, I fortunately missed the one ten days, but I mean, that was also obviously a, a thing. And then ninety six hundred came out, and then. I remember I, yeah, there was a whole complex thing about how I got one of those. And then 14.4 happened, and then 28.8 happened, and then 56 happened. And, like, so I was familiar with this idea that, you know, your your network connection got faster as time went on, and you did more and more things. Um, but for a long time, the thing that I fundamentally did was, like, connect to a primarily text-based service and so the only thing that got better was my automated, like, CompuServe program would be able to, like, log in, scrape everything, and log off faster. Um, and so it wasn't until, you know, the mid-90s with 56K modems versus, like, being in the computer lab and having whatever we had at one I guess, um, where you would have fundamentally different kinds of connection experiences. Um, and where other things might have limited your experience, too, like the fact that you're on a very slow computer might have been more of a limiter to what you could do online than the fact that you had no bandwidth um anyway I i just think of that sometimes when i think about how i i kvetch about like the sort of insufficient internet speed that i have at home and then i go on a vacation and i'm like oh man the world has it so so much worse than me you know like oh i'm i went on a vacation by a lake in new york and just to like get a megabit just one one megabit in either direction basically
0: impossible in this community you know so but you know i, I don't yeah, know yeah again it's it's just it's just the idea that all fundamentally you need to do is put people in touch with each other and a, a converse way to think about it and i'm i probably did say this at some point on the podcast i don't know but it's gonna be how are you gonna how am i gonna explain to my daughter <laughs> that there was a computer industry for almost 20 years before we actually in a real way started hooking computers up to each other because yeah. now, from from looking looking back on it from 2014, what was the point of having a computer in 1986 like we did? Our ours was a uh, IBM PS2 model 25 was our first one, but you didn't. Ooh, wow! You so, guys are very. Hmm, Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was unfortunately. Yeah, I wish we had just yeah. had a, a normal run of the mill compact or something, but, um, like, the idea of computers. Just sitting on a desk and not talking to each other is insane because this is what this is what computers were made for, was to hook up together, to hook people up together, to, you know, do all the things that the internet does now. You know, you and I as children of the 80s, our entire childhood, we were promised that computers were going to revolutionize our lives. And there was a multi-billion dollar computer industry before any, I mean, obviously some people were connecting them together. There were networks and things like that but in in a way that all the computers are now connected together. Like, it seems insane. How could you have gone that long and sold that many computers and you weren't doing the fundamental thing that computers are really, this is what they're on the planet Earth for?
1: Well, I think we look back at it now for sure and see that that's self-evident. But at the time, like, I actually liken it to if you look at the computer now and you look through your screen and think, okay, internet is out there, right? Like, I am a node on this vast network of things. In those days prior to networking, and I include, you know, BBSs and stuff in networking, like, or whatever, any any early system, to me, the universe was inside the box. (laughs) Like, like I literally, one of my high school science fair projects was writing a program that attempted to demonstrate natural selection. Um, And so it was this, like, you know, automata thing where you'd have these, like, create these little creatures and the creatures which were just arrays like the creature was an array of like attributes like a Dungeons and Dragons character basically just a series of numbers that made up a thing there was no visual display and they would like fight it out and mutate and like you know reproduce and pass on these genes which were basically uh, ranges of attributes and stuff like to me, the fact that I could make this thing on my XT, which is what I got, I got handed down that thing, when my my father was kind of done with it. Um, I wrote that program there, um, I think in Pascal, maybe. anyway, I like, took that and I could put that on his uh, like three eighty six, and so I would borrow his work computer to run my program because it was like orders of magnitude faster, and I could get through you know ten thousand generations instead of like three or whatever it was so but so the thing was i felt like i was sitting in front of a box of infinite possibility and so it was my job as a as a user as like a you know a person to utilize the infinity in front of me inside the box and it didn't really occur to me that that box could then have like a little snake tail sitting out the back of it that plugged into every other box and that that was what was inherently valuable because so I spent a bunch of time like programming things or writing things, or thinking, you know, like I, I used to think I'll write myself a shell that will be my way of using my own computer, like I'll write this you know thing that sits atop the OS. and as like an eight-year- old, that was to me this revolutionary concept, and it was on me to figure that out. you and know then,
0: what <laughs> yeah. that that's really that's really the perspective of a true first-generation user of a technology because, again, you know, I, I'm sorry to bring up my kid all the time, but, I you know, I guess mm-hmm. being a father changes you. But, yeah, my kid is not – is going to come to computers and be like, hey, this thing just needs to work to get out there to do all the things I need to do. But what you're describing being an 8-year-old and, <clears throat> you know, okay, this, this machine is infinite and it's up to me to make it work and do all the magical things that it has the potential to do – when you're a second generation user of technology, you have no, you have no patience for that sort of thing. And and the analogy would be, all the people that tinkered with the first cars, the automobiles in the 1910s and the 1915s and 16s, like you uh-huh. hear if you read those books, you hear all those stories about yeah, man, it broke down every other mile. They had to constantly you know jury rig all these ways to keep it running, and it was just, it w- it was this nightmare. And so you think, well, why the hell were they interested in these things? Because well, it was the same sort of mindset that you're describing where it's like, oh, my God, this car can take me anywhere in the world. And it's up to me to make it to make it happen. You know, well, whereas you now. Did. And it was awesome. like That was awesome for them. Right. 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 And so whereas now. It didn't even have never... roads, you know. Well, <laughs> yes. right. It, roads that were paved at all. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Right, that was the other thing who there wants was no to go on a, highway right? Who oh, wants yeah. to go on a fifty mile car excursion on bumpy back roads and stuff like that, but that's the point right. is that yeah you you wouldn't accept a car breaking down on you once in its entire life now if you're lucky. you know think about that. the fact that now we're so spoiled that if if a car breaks down once in the time that you own it, you're like, well, that was not a well made car. I'll never buy from that company again. You you would know you would never tolerate that. But if you're the first generation user of a technology, it's like the technology is so magical in a way that, yeah, we even being first generation users of the internet, we accepted. Okay, I've got to wait thirty seconds every time I load a new web page. I've got to right. wait for the image to scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. Because yeah, this is oh, we can go anywhere with this browser you know so yeah we we we, those weren't limitations to us that was just the way it was and it was up to us to 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 get out there and and see what we could do with it
1: well i want to extend your tangent a little bit which is um so i have an obsession with a a a british author named neville Shute, and he's best known for the novel on the beach which is this Mm -hmm. nuclear yeah I, I, i
0: i've never maybe i did read it but yeah i know what you're talking about
1: worth reading uh but anyway the point is uh, he's written he wrote like 35 novels so a ton of these and they're very formulaic and i also there's a biography and an autobiography of this guy and i was kind of like who is this guy because a lot of the books are about um like people who fly airplanes in dangerous situations and like the back flap would say you know like well Neville shoot was involved in world war one he flew in the raf like in in extremely early aircraft and he was, like, involved in dirigibles and stuff. Um, And then, like, in World War II, he was developing, like, different kinds of airplanes and stuff. But anyway, like, when you read this guy's autobiography, or even if you just sit back and think for a while, I guess what I got out of looking at this guy's writing is I'm like, well, this guy is a nerd.
0: This guy is, like, mm-hmm. a super nerd. Yeah. Oh, yes. I know exactly what right. you're saying. Go so on.
1: See where I'm going with this. Like, in yeah. the 19-teens, so what could he be an amazing nerd about? And the answer was, like, aeroplanes you can right. fly in the right. sky and probably die you know like but that was the thing that a super duper nerd would like get into and so he was nerding out on like these f- that he had by necessity to do a physically nerdy thing like you know planes and boats because i think before planes it was you know automobiles before automobiles it was boats everybody's mm-hmm. been nerding or, about or, boats or for like a thousand f- years or yeah trains yeah
0: right trains right so like pick your like Thing, your awesome dynamo of industry or whatever. Well, and and lots of people have made this analogy that that Detroit was the Silicon Valley of a hundred years ago, and and they mean that in the sense that it was, you know, the the cradle of technological innovation, and it was driving the American economy, and that's of course hundred percent true. But also because if you read a history of the auto industry or history of Detroit, these are. Guys that are in garages tinkering with stuff. All the people that made the first cars, and not just Henry Ford. I'm talking about. And now, see, I'm not a car guy, so I'm not going to remember any names. But um, you know, old and um, I don't know. I can't think.
1: Yeah, of I'm going to pretend that I. I'm just going to admit I don't know anything about. Oh, uh, okay. Although,
0: I, I was hoping that you were more of a car guy than well.
1: Me. I have been to the Ford and Firestone homes, which are in like Fort Myers, but yeah, right. I
0: don't, I don't but know but the it, point so. is that those guys were. If we're if we're if we're if I'm doing a podcast lionizing people that go into garages and and tinker around with software and make websites and apps and stuff, these were guys that were in literal garages tinkering around with literal tools. <laughs> 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 they were nerds that were into machinery. Like you can't get more nerdy than that than a guy that's uh, forget about software engineer. He's a real engineer and he's putting these gear shafts together and you know, so yeah that that yes that was. That was nerdy. That was technological, cutting-edge nerdery.
1: Well, I think that when you, when you bring your daughter into it, I, I don't have any children, I don't plan to, but I don't know. Who knows, right? Like, I, I think from my outsider perspective, I look at that, and I'm like, okay, you exist in this continuum, right? And I do, too. And part of my continuum problem is, like, I have this 12-year-old niece, right? And I cannot... She, she recently had an iPad and basically said, I don't want this iPad anymore. I want a laptop. And it was like inconceivable to me. Like, why would a child not want an iPad? And she was like, I want to play Minecraft and install mods. Oh, boy. Right? And so she gets this laptop and she proceeds to just go deep, like Minecraft, mods, like doing stuff with the laptop. And, like, this sort of went against everything that I assumed was true about youth. (laughs) You know, like, I was just like, oh, kids love phones and tablets, right? I mean, right? That's what kids do these days. So I I think that our ability to understand, well, I'll I'll put it this way, my ability to understand and put myself in the shoes of people who come after me technologically is extremely limited. You know, so I think part of it was, you know, I first I pull up Netscape 1.0 or whatever, and I'm like, ugh, too slow, you know, like less space than a like a Nomad, lame, right? Like, I just look at this and I'm like, I, yeah, I don't get that. Forget it. I was already a cranky old man at like, you know, in my mid-teens, right? So I think that our ability to to think what, you know, because also we came into this in a very privileged time when like computers had displays, for instance, and mm-hmm. like. You know, so oh right, can, yeah, yeah. Had, at any had at any point, right. right, right. You can roll it, it, it back and just...
0: switches that you would, yeah, program by ter- by switching up and down switches, right? Yeah. And Although I mean, I, I I was so pleased with myself. I had
1: a the, the XT had a math coprocessor in an eighty eighty seven, and like I also had a two eighty six accelerator card, and you could either have the coprocessor installed, which was actually faster for floating point math, or you could have this like accelerator card installed. And so I think it was a 286. Anyway, the point was, I was playing with fractals as like a literally as like an eight or nine year old on my monochrome display. And like, but I would take apart the computer, like I would take off the case and I'd pull out the whatever it was, I don't know, uh, ISA card, I guess, like pull out this accelerator and put in a like into the pin socket thing with my bare hands, probably zapping everything with like, you know, (laughs) all manner of static Um, put a math coprocessor in there, close it all up, run a program, uh, turn it off, take it out. Like that was a thing that I did on a regular basis and it seemed very normal to me. And so in the same way that I look at like a kid, right? Like I see like a 12 year old now and I see this kid is installing like Java mods on this game. Like that kind of blows my mind because the kid's not like a programmer or whatever, but I'm like, no, this is exactly the same instinct that led me to tinker right, in the way that I had to tinker to get a thing done. Like, I wanted a picture to come out of the computer, and in my case, to get the picture efficiently out of the computer, I had to, like, take apart the computer and put a new thing in it <laughs> to, like, juice it up. Um, and so, know, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I just I just think that the ability to model, I, I feel like I will never be able to share the experience that I had with any child of mine, for sure, right? Like, I can never, like, you have this uh, laudable goal of exposing your daughter to, like, good television media like that's great i don't know how long i give you for that one because i don't have any like parental experience to like say when you're just going to have to abandon that but i will say that i i similarly like i was brought up in a household where my father worked in the cable tv industry we didn't have tv really until i was about seven like it existed but it was not turned on it was brought out for special events only and we had records and we had books And I don't think, in retrospect, that that was as conscious a choice as I thought it was when I was, like, eight. Because when I did discover TV, when they did sort of open the floodgates and say, eh, screw it, watch Murphy Brown go nuts, like, I was just blown away by the availability and quality of all these things. But, like, I don't think my parents sat there and said, well, let's try to model our own childhood and, like, present this to our kids so they won't be, like, spoiled by TV. I really don't think that they thought that. Um, but it makes for a really good story. And honestly, if I had grown up with TV earlier, I think that I would have abused TV in the same way that I kind of abused computers. And so I kind of wonder what your daughter will do when she figures out, like, like I think that your daughter will be smart enough by, like, age two and a half to find a way to circumvent whatever it is you're attempting to do.
0: Yeah, right. Well, yeah, and I'll stipulate that I'm not one of these people that are that's like I my kid is not gonna watch television. I like I Right, I, right, right. I'd just rather trying, her watch right? good stuff and, and yes, okay, I am trying to, you know, uh put her to sleep every night with Smith songs and stuff, and yes, <laughs> the best the best laid plans to turn her into a little monster exactly like me, I'm sure will not actually pan out, but I'm trying.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, we have to we just have to ask the follow up here, which
0: Smith's record, like the Queen is dead or like well uh you know what's (laughs) i hope admitting this does not does not uh, already uh have someone call social services on me but one of the best ones is do you know that song um asleep the the last song on on the first miss album i don't know well no sing me to oh no not it's not on the it's not the it's it's on it's on um one of the singles collections but it's the song that's a really slow lullaby song, "Sing Me to Sleep." Okay, me. yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. a song about suicide. <laughs> right. Well, they're all pretty much songs
1: that, like, you right. know, a double decker bus. Right. So you it's know, like, it's it,
0: it, so I've been using that song a lot because it's a really, really good like calm down and go to sleep because it's "Sing Me to Sleep" in, in the title. Mm-hmm. And I'm just hoping that you know maybe if if she does stick with the Smiths, yes, at some day at age 13 or something, she'll be like. Hey, uh, Dad, you do know that that song's about suicide, right? Right.
1: Well, for me, it was it was like Puff the Magic
0: Dragon, right? I'm like, wait right. a minute, yeah, those guys yeah. were
1: talking tubes.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, um, just just the nice, calming Smith songs where Morrissey's singing pretty is mean. Yeah.
1: Well, there's a lot to be said for that. I, I gotta tell you. Yeah. Well,
0: to 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 cycle it back just a bit because you made me think of something that I wrote down when you said that. Um, you know your your honest reactions to the web were sort of skeptical and negative and and you had said also earlier like you you know you hoped that that you I could press people to get more honest answers and you're exactly right about that because i i need to do a better job of now on the one hand i am just trying to do oral histories so i'm trying to have people recollect it as i remember it but Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm setting up a framework where this is like, okay, we're telling the history of the Internet. So there's no motivation for people to be like, oh, yeah, when I first heard of the web, I thought that was a bunch of crap and wasn't going to go anywhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I've got to find a way to yeah. somehow sort of push people in a direction of, well, but yeah, tell me honestly, though, did you really think Yahoo was going to be anything or something? You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, uh, on uh, The problem is, on the one hand, I'm setting it up. People are going to want to tell the victorious story. Oh yeah, I was all—I always knew the web was going to be big, and I always knew that our company was going to be big. But yeah, I got to find a way to to push people to to try to remember and be honest about what they really remember from the time, you know?
1: Yeah, and I mean, for what it's worth, and this is getting into kind of journalism talk, but I'll keep it brief. I think that the the notion of saying to anyone, whether it's this is in your life, like asking your parents about something or reporting on technology, it, it is quite literally like saying. Let us close our eyes and go back. Let us go back to a time, right? Like, you know, if we walk through this, if I say to you, like, let's go back to, like, 1997 or something like that, right? Like, do you remember the color that computers were? Like, on screen, they were this, like, particular kind of platinum-y gray thing. And, like, you know, there were certain kinds of sounds, even. Like, the sound that the computer made when it started up and it made the beep noise. Like, you can kind of begin through sense memory to... I don't want to say hypnotize your subject, but say, you know, let's go all the way back to when you are in college and you're eating this kind of food and you are hearing these kinds of sounds. And then like, you know, saying the first time that you saw, I guess one, one question is relevant to ask myself and you too, is like, given that I didn't like, like Netscape when I first saw it, what changed my mind, right? I don't remember, but I do remember like, by the time I got to college, I think what it must have been was that CompuServe was basically going out of business, and all of the stuff that was interesting on the web wasn't available on the web, not on CompuServe. And so there was some point at which I kind of tried it again, and, oh, my God, it's great. And then also, like, there's the reality of just realizing that, okay, I'm, a, I'm you know, a student, and pretty soon I'm going to have to have a job, and that's going to necessitate me making some choices here. Um but when you talk to people and ask them to bring you back, um, I think Ira Glass brought this up at one point. He was like, ask people what they thought was going to happen and what happened instead. And a lot of people are incapable of answering that question. I found this out because they're not, they have erased the original part yeah. from their memory, yeah. right? Like yeah. that thing I thought was going to happen is, has just like gotten lost in the new story. Um, But you will occasionally find somebody who says, well, I set out to do X. You know, like, when I came, and I think part of it is, like, I came to Portland because I wanted a job. And I wanted a technology job. But, quite honestly, that could have gone in a ton of different directions. I could have been a sound engineer. I could have been, like, a lot of stuff that I wasn't. And it just happened that I was a, I got a web job. Um, But, you know, like if I'm being very honest about it, like I came to the West coast to get away from Florida and to get a job. And I happened to kind of like look in technology and have a couple of kinds of skills that looked like they were going to pay me pretty well. But like in that cements a story that, Oh, I came out to the West coast to be in a com and to like, you know, ride the wave and get some stock options and like see how it all worked out. But I've seen how even in my own life, like I can easily rewrite my own history by just kind of forgetting. Cause who, who kind of cares? And I, even in companies too, like I don't want to get into too much detail, but like I've written apps where like the story of the app, you know, for iPhone or iPad or whatever has already kind of morphed into a new story because on the one hand, it kind of doesn't matter like to most people, you know, who actually made a a given app and like, you know, like what's the actual history there. And so as a historian, you're walking into this minefield of, people who've probably been telling the same version of the story because it got cemented at one point, like some profile was written in Newsweek and they were like, well, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. And so
0: that's how they remember it too. Yeah. That's yeah. actually, that's such an interesting point that I hadn't thought of. It's not, it's not that I'm getting the victorious story because it's history now and, and they came through it victorious. And so they're telling, you know, the, 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 the line that, that makes them look the best. It's almost like they, you're right they might not really remember unless prodded what it really was like at the beginning, what they really set out to do. And it's not because they're trying to whitewash history. It's just that that's how they remember it now too. Yeah. 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 I got to I, I, I'm always trying to get better at this. I wasn't trained for it. (laughs) Well, there's two to be be fair. Neither was I. So there, there's two, um, the, the two models for the podcast that I have are like, the whole concept of doing it as a podcast is because i love podcasts and so i love mark maron mm-hmm. who obviously is an insanely good interviewer so i try to like i've been listening to his interviews more now when i listen to him i'm listening to hear what he's doing you know? right sure but then also um the other one is uh do you know dan carlin's hardcore history at all
1: no, I don't think if so. If you
0: if anyone does, Dan Carlin's like this radio guy. I actually don't really know what his specific background is, but um he's sort of an amateur historian kind of like me where but he does things like he did a great multi-piece series on the Mongols and right now his series is on World War 1 and how it started and what it was like and he he's almost exactly like me. He reads the books and he like does a narrative. So literally, what this podcast is, what this project is is taking Mark Marin and grafting it onto um dan Carlin's hardcore history and right. so th- those are the chapter episodes and those are the interview episodes and so yeah i'm i am i I'm trying to get better as an interviewer because I feel like I have a good grasp of the narrative for the the history parts and you know, on the one hand, i the, the, the value that I am hoping to get out of the interviews is the oral history part. So I do want people to tell it in their own in their own words. You know, it's mm-hmm. I always I always tell people at the beginning of interviews, like, listen, just just go, because this is not like, you know, a, a profile in a magazine where I'm going to talk to you for two hours and then you'll get three sentences that will actually make the piece. <laughs> Everything right. that you say, I'm going to put up. So just go, you know. And actually, that usually, that starts us off on a good foot because they're like, okay, yeah, that's not that hard. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm going to try to, to, in subtle ways, try to encourage more. Well, it, it, yeah, like you said, tell me tell me what you intended to do.
1: Well, yeah, and let, let's do an exercise here.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: do you remember, just off the top of your head, the first podcast that got you into podcasting? Hmm
0: It yeah you from, know what right? i know what i i know what i would want to say would be comedy bang bang right right but what do you know what it really might have been i believe that it was either the verge cast well it wasn't the verge cast then it was Engadget. yeah uh the podcast the Engadget podcast with josh topolsky and um mm-hmm. paul miller and, and nilai patel and it was either that or it was adam carolla and it probably was right. Adam Carolla because I'm a big Howard Stern listener. So I'm sure after Carolla got fired off of radio, he went on Stern to bitch about it and said, oh, yeah, I'm doing a podcast now. So that it was probably Adam Carolla.
1: Yeah. And I mean, did you ever listen to like the Ricky Gervais show when it was a podcast?
0: You know what? I never did. And and friends right. would rave about that for years. So, yeah, I can't claim to be. Yeah, that would be you're an OG podcast fan. If you listen to I remember I had a friend, um, one of the startups I did with a friend of mine and he lived in my house and we did it. And so this was 2005, and he was listening to Ricky Gervais, 2005, 2006, every night and raving about it, and I never got into it, yeah.
1: I like downloading from, like, Audible.com for money in some cases. But, yeah, like, like for me, it was The Sound of Young America, which was Jesse Thorne. I, I also remember, we're like, listening to the first episodes of Jordan, Jesse Go!, which is now one mm-hmm. of the longer-running podcasts that's still going. But, like... The other thing I wanted to ask you is is situationally like, did you have a commute or something? Like, when would you listen to these podcasts? Because I, had I to walk to work. And, like, yeah, that no, was, you know, I, my time.
0: I haven't I haven't had a commute for fifteen years. I so it was just like around the house or. What? Yeah, yeah. I I have um, every company that I've done um, has never had an office. I've done four companies and um, they've all been completely web based. And so, even the company I still own. Has about uh, 50 employees all around the country, and I I've met three of them in the 15 years that <laughs> we've been all working together wow, in person. Wow. You know, uh-huh. yeah. So so the answer to your question is yes. As I am doing <laughs> doing my work all day long in front of computers in my house, uh, occasionally going to coffee shops, going for a run, walking the dog. Yes, I. You know what that comes from is 20 years of listening to Howard Stern every day.
1: Right, right. Because for me, it came from NPR. Like, that mm-hmm. was that was just on when I was growing up, and I, I kept it like that because it felt weird to, like, take a shower and not be listening to, like, the news.
0: 100%. Yeah, because for 20 years of I, every I, – I used to wake up at 6 a.m. just to get the start of Howard before, you know – actually, mm-hmm. I, I found them on the internet later, and then and then now mm-hmm. I'm serious, you know. But, well, but yeah, so I, I I've trained myself for 20 years to – I'm going to be listening to something for four to six hours a day. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think that's, that's a little, um, I don't mean to be like, you know, the trickster or whatever, but it's right, like right. a microcosm of saying as yeah. a guy who is currently making a podcast, like, I think you may suffer from the same kinds of gaps in memory that are just completely natural. Cause like, yeah. I honestly can't tell you, I would have no idea how I found out about like the sound of young America. Like I don't remember, but I did. And like, it was in, I don't know, 2004 or five somewhere. And it's because I had an iPod and i had to walk around and i was i guess i got into audiobooks or something and because you had to pay money for those i was like hmm is there like any other source of spoken stuff and there kind of was and i was like i'm one of these guys who w- was never a howard stern listener but like everybody i know um was so like i'm familiar with like you know you have these different cultural associations and i think also technologically you'll end up with people who are like well i was always a windows guy or "I yeah yeah like, guy, yeah. like it did not really matter but like we're on the same universe, um, but yeah, culturally speaking, like I've never listened to like a whole Howard Stern show. Like I've listened to maybe like half of two of them ever. Um, anyway, but like, should we return to uh, technology topics, or is it like wrap it up, call it a?
0: Well, it yeah, a if you want to, let's 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 bring it back to let's bring it back to the podcast. If you have any other questions about um. The, the chapter specifically, and then, and then, yeah, we can wrap it up. We're getting close to an hour and a half, so sure.
1: Well, I think the one thing I wanted to sort of challenge or ask about is this idea that Netscape as a company... I agree that it's the template for the startup.com company, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. duh. Like, you'd have to be... I think you'd have to be really... Anyway, I don't disagree with that. But I do want to ask... Like, I, I have a feeling that before that, there were these kind of perverse, like, mix-all-the-boundaries kinds of companies... Um, you know, I mean, an example of that would be, I know it's not a company, but the Manhattan project, like that was, we're going to move all y'all out of the desert and use work all the time. <laughs> like, like there is no home life balance. Like this is more important. And like, I think that that's, I think there are other precedents for that. And I think that Netscape is probably a good example because it succeeded and because it was, you know, a company that made a product that, that took off like a rocket. But I do wonder if there were other, like, I think it'd be useful to look even in, like, the technology area. Like, Mm -hmm. I think to some extent um, Fairchild might have been like this. Right,
0: right. Any of the semiconductor companies, any of the early PC companies, you know. Well, Apple was certainly like this. Right, right. And and what what Halt and Catch Fire is sort of dramatizing. Um, Certainly, and uh, yes, uh, Netscape by no means created Silicon Valley at all. (laughs) You know? As yeah. you as you said, you know the Fairchild and, and the the, um, the silicon, the semiconductor industry created Silicon Valley, and and then the PC and in- so then that's Generation One, and then the PC industry is Generation Two, but what I think, and I do, I I'm sure I quoted this somewhere, um, Andreessen says when he gets out to Silicon Valley that it was sort of dead. And a couple other people around that story make the same point that if you remember in history, this was 93, 94, so Mm -hmm. still early 90s. So we're right after the recession of 90, 91. And that hit the technology industry particularly hard. Um, And so Silicon Valley was sort of in recession at, at this point still. And so if the the semiconductor industry was generation one and the the PC industry was generation two, then the, when Netscape and and the web arrive on the scene, it's very much generation three. And like that's even something that I can that I've experienced myself because I remember what it was like in 2002, 2001, 2002, when, you know the dot-com bubble had burst and man you know there, there didn't seem to be a lot going on in technology and then because I was there witnessing it when stuff started to bubble up again in 2004 2005 and you start to hear about web 2.0 and social networking and things like that so maybe that's you know web 2.0 is that's generation four but so I agree with you that uh, Netscape, was not at all the the template for startup um in a macro sense but it absolutely was the template for the the startup as we think of it colloquial, colloquially today um in in the the the, the facebook sense the uh, kids you know leaving college and and running out to silicon valley to become billionaires sense like that's sort of what i harped on in that in in those chat in that chapter is that what we think of as the stereotypical silicon valley story of the 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 young kids working hard and getting fabulously rich you know as as that that movie made it you know famously, what's cool is a billion dollars, you know, <laughs> like right. that is what Netscape set the template for, because those were the guys that got on the cover of Time magazine that, that had this IPO that made all of Wall Street. I mean, it's, we shouldn't under, underemphasize how important it was that all of a sudden Wall Street pricked its ears up and it's like, oh, there's money being made again. And, Netscape's IPO was very much important for that. Like it it literally is the 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 opening shot, you know, that the race is on that starts the the, the dot the dot com bubble. And I I hope to get into that. Uh, my intention is to do a chapter or two that talks about I mean, I'm gonna do several chapters, obviously, on the dot com era and the bubble and all that stuff. But I'm I wanna do chapters that look at it from a Wall Street perspective from, mm-hmm. from the perspective of the stock market. And, and why, why was this all tied together? You know, why did all of a sudden, you know, CNBC was the background music for all of our lives there for a period in the late nineties, you know, and everyone's trying to invest in, in IPOs com companies and stuff. But I, I still would stand by the fact that while not the first startup, it Netscape, was the template for startup as we think of it now as, as the glory story.
1: Well, I I have a hypothesis and, you know, I haven't thought this out a whole lot, but I I think that the difference that I can perceive now is Netscape was a software startup with a distribution platform of the internet. And that's a different thing. Like there were software startups. I mean, Microsoft for instance, Um, but starting out and saying we make a product that is software, meaning we can iterate until we hit the button and our distribution is not uh, physical. It's, it's very internet dependent. Although, the, yeah, there were like Netscape CDs and stuff. I remember installing off of one. Um, I think that thing, the idea that you can reach your customers by pressing a button instead of like starting the factory humming might be part of what makes it different. And I wonder, like as a guy, I worked quite a bit in, you know, web startups. I wonder if that's something they would agree with. To
0: um, To a person. Uh, okay. To a man, all of the Netscape people that I, I spoke to made that exact point. Okay, good. Yeah, you may it's... you may notice I have not listened to
1: those actual interviews yet. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, but th- no, but that was exactly right. That was that's that whole concept of, of Internet time, what some people called Netscape time or Internet time. That you know, then Bill Gates and Microsoft, they they rejigger their entire organization, and they're like, we have to compete on Internet time. You know, they're they're a company that, yes, and to this day is still on multi-year development cycles for pieces of software that they ship, you know, and their ship dates and stuff like that. And uh, uh, Alex Totich of of Netscape and um, John Middlehauser and, and and a bunch of people all said the same thing. They're like, yeah, you know, we would come up with the, um, 1.0 version and the 1.5 version and the 2.0 version. And all we did was just hit a button and put it out on, put it out for people to download. And yeah. not only did they all say, yeah, that's what revo- that, that was, what was revolutionary about it. But that's also what geeked them out about it, man, is they loved that and, and they would get the immediate feedback from the users and the, you know, they did their own, they did their own product testing. Because if there was a bug or something, the, the, the users of Mosaic especially, but also Netscape, in the Netscape days, they would just email the guys, and they'd be like, hey, there's this bug here. And, and they'd be like, thanks, we'll <laughs> fix that, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, I was a product manager for years at a web software company. And, like, you have this this problem um, that I think is what leads to kind of the abuse, potentially, of, like, people having to sleep under their desks and just working infinitely, which is where do we cut this off? Like, at what point do we call it 1.0? Because everybody knows that, you know, like at some point the product became useful long ago and you're just sort of like adding more crap to it. And then releases become basically just time boundaries more so than actual features. Um, so you have this this tremendous potential to move milestones, uh, to move goalposts, I should say. And like, I think the, the natural result of that, if you have people who are like young and energetic and hungry and potentially like, could be rewarded for it is like they'll just work around the clock because if you can just keep cramming more good stuff into that first one or like the next one or the next one or whatever like what's the motivation to not be there and I think that previously there were many motivations to not be there and one of them was okay once this is done it has to be like the Mona Lisa or It has to be like this polished piece of marble that be sculpted a million times and if we d- discover a defect afterwards we're really really in trouble versus a dot you know a one release that fixes all the the obvious defects that they yeah, missed because they should at uh, three in the morning you know
0: you know what you know what's funny think about that like that's a metaphor for the entire internet and how it works and you would know that as someone that's a writer on the internet you know you're not writing for um tomorrow's first edition or the the the, <laughs> the, the issue that's going to come out next week you know as a, as a writer and a publisher on the web you write something you put it up there it is it's an it's an all the time thing like that's the, that's one of the many things that that is different about the internet it, you're no longer shipping a physical piece of software that you're developing over a piece of sev- over you know several years it's 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 a always evolving you know piece of technology the web is an always evolving medium of communication and publishing and yeah i that in a way that's that's the metaphor for the for the entire web
1: I, well, I also think that some people thrive on that. You know, some people are are able to say, "I will be my own quality filter, and I'll be okay with posting a blog post or whatever." Um, and I've become increasingly okay with just kind of doing a thing and putting it up <laughs> over the years. But like, there are people who are super freaked out by that. I don't think it's because they're old old school. I think it's just a personality type to say
0: you know, no, no, like there must be an, a gatekeeper that says it's all okay. Yeah, um, but you know what? There's also there's also some companies that thrive in that world too and some yeah. companies that don't, you know?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's where your your investigation of companies becomes interesting because culturally speaking, like, you know, you have these institutions that are like, well, this is how we do it, right? And like, I think that that's so interesting that that would persist in a Microsoft that is, that is com- you know, composed of this set of people that shifts so much. That yeah. they would still have like innate cultural traits that they are proud of you know or anybody is proud of that, that would persist for so long
0: you know it's funny i've said this to several people i didn't i didn't actually intend to when i started the project i didn't think i was going to spend a lot of time on microsoft because again most of my professional career has been in the last 10 years or so mm-hmm. where no offense to microsoft people please talk to me i have no agendas believe me uh, so don't take offense to this but um microsoft has kind of been a non-entity but you know going back and doing the research everything microsoft touched everybody and even if they didn't touch every company that we're talking about every company was operating in relation to microsoft in fear of microsoft or thinking of what microsoft might do and and so realizing that i had to i had to to delve deeper into Microsoft, I actually became more fascinated with it because yeah, it is such an interesting story and, um, a still evolving story and, and just a, a, it's, it's fascinating how quickly you can be absolutely the king of the world.
1: I I think I, (laughs) I think I said
0: at, at one point in, in the episode that the exact moment of Microsoft's greatest triumph was also like you can now trace it back to like you know kind of its beginning of its downfall to to you know its questionable you know status in the industry today you know windows 95 it's it's 1995 it's it, gates has finally slain all of his software enemies and you know stands across the industry like a colossus you know and that's the exact year of the netscape ipo and and the web getting mainstream and and you know all of a sudden as soon as that happens it's the dominance is it starts to crumble that
1: sounds like a great place to leave it for
0: next week yeah um yes and also because as i said i've had a cold and (laughs) we've already had a couple blowouts here so my voice isn't going to last much longer um chris thank you so much and um yeah i don't know um uh I, I would like I'd like you know some listeners to give us some feedback on this and and tell us what you think about it and um we'll try to we'll try to do these and and um, sprinkle them in in between the the normal episodes and the interviews and the chapters. Sounds good to me. Um, is this the part where I promote a thing that I do? Yeah, I was gonna say promote whatever you want and <laughs> definitely definitely um give us your Twitter your 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 web page whatever you want to do. Um, yeah,
1: on Twitter, I'm Chris Higgins, C-H-R-I-S-H-I-G-G-I-N-S. Um, I unfortunately share the, the same name as um, apparently multiple hockey players, um, but I got there first. I'm also ChrisHiggins.com, and I've got a couple of books out. Um, oh, and I think by the time this comes out, we should be right around the time that a, uh, a new story comes out in the magazine, which is the-magazine.com, which has recently relaunched their app platform and is a really good time to go look at it and, uh, download issues. You may even get them for free if you were very fast in the draw.
0: Um, yeah, check it out. And, uh, you have a great, a great book, uh, The Blogger Abides, which I highly recommend. Thank you.
1: Not just for bloggers. Uh, Next time I'll name it something about just general interest writing, (laughs) but yeah, (laughs) the writer abides.
0: All right, Chris, thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Brian. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review, because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com. Get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.